It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The social media websites and apps you see represent a slightly cleaned-up version of the Internet. Tens of thousands of moderators make sure of it, removing all kinds of troubling stuff. But do they have too much power over what gets through, or not enough? And how are they affected by sifting through the most offensive material online? And have you ever heard of ultra-pole? It's a sort of extreme version of pole dancing, aimed at men. The pursuit has already done lots to shed its sexualized image. And if it can become more gender-balanced, it might well become an Olympic sport. But first... It's the biggest democratic exercise on Earth, India's general election. The scale of it is staggering. Some 900 million people began voting last week at a million polling stations. The process will continue until the 23rd of May. The election is the first since Narendra Modi, the leader of the Bharatiya Junta Party, was sworn in as Prime Minister of India. He swept to power in 2014 with an inclusive message promising jobs and progress. His focus on Hindu unity, the majority faith in India, put an end to seven decades of secularist politics. Since then, though, his popularity has waned somewhat. Economic growth is disappointing. Unemployment is relatively high. But the recent boiling over of long-standing tensions with neighboring Pakistan has revitalized Mr. Modi's bid for re-election. So the election is as was anticipated, the biggest in the world, ever. Alex Trevelli is an India correspondent with The Economist, based in Delhi. India's largest means the world's largest. You hear that an estimated 900 million Indians are eligible to vote, and Indians tend to vote at relatively high rates, between 60 and 80 percent in most states. More than one in nine humans is eligible to vote. And then the rigmarole of actually conducting elections in a country as sprawling and in some ways challenged as this one means that polling takes a long time. So tell us about Narendra Modi. So Narendra Modi uh, has changed Indian politics indelibly. And that's something that we could have said even before uh, the 2014 general election, India's last One of the most striking ways formally is that he presents himself as something like a presidential candidate. The party that he leads, the Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, really uh, rides on his coattails. But he speaks uh, forcefully. He projects the image of a strong man, perhaps a very virtuous man. 
also a man with a hopeful attitude about the future, about India's greatness and its uh, claiming its rightful role in the world. Now, notably, the campaign he ran in 2014 was much more focused on India's booming economy or economy that everyone felt should be booming harder. This time around, he's voting, uh, or rather, he's asking voters to choose him much more on the basis of his nationalist credentials, his ability to protect India from enemies, foreign enemies, internal enemies. It's in many ways a, a darker campaign, no less contentious. So on that note, then, how big a part will Pakistan play as an election issue? Well, Pakistan is playing uh, a very large role. It's easy to say an outsized role in this election because of something that began in February. And in the middle of February, there was a terrorist bombing in Indian-administered Kashmir that was horribly successful. It killed 40 Indian soldiers, paramilitary forces, and um, came as a real blow to the sense of the nation. Now, 13 days later, uh, Mr. Modi ordered airstrikes, and it's unclear what damage they did, but uh, Pakistan responded with airstrikes of its own, and there was a dogfight. And uh, India was able to walk away from this kind of mixed military exchange, saying that Mr. Modi had sought and found vengeance for the loss of those 40 soldiers, and uh, that this proves that his is the government that will defend India against Pakistan. So every day since then, on the campaign trail, uh, from not only his BJP, but from the other parties as well, you're hearing Pakistan, 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 uh, as if as if India-Pakistan relationships uh, were the most important uh, of all matters facing the Indian voter. It's very strange in part because uh, the India-Pakistan relationship has been frozen solid for the past four years and has nothing apparent to do with any of the bread and butter uh, issues that tend to determine elections in India. Well, what are the, the real bread and butter issues? What do the, 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 the Indian voters really care about? Well, right now, it, it's different at different times, but right now it seems like farmer distress is one of the very big things. And then from the more urban, uh, even middle class side of the electorate, it's a kind of jobs crisis. What you have is not so much mass unemployment of the Western kind, uh, although the figure is record-breaking for India, it's, it's still only 6.7%, I, I believe. And that may look low by Western standards, but what it reflects is a huge disappointment on the part of the Indian workforce. It means that uh, a lot of Indians would rather get no work at all uh, then take up the sort of crummy jobs that are available to them. Uh, this is in part a product of uh, greater education and greater ambitions. And it's one of the things Mr. Modi campaigned on most centrally in 2014. The number of jobs in India is barely greater now than it was then. So there seems to be plenty to challenge Mr. Modi on. Who are the other contenders, his political threats? So the, the chief contender uh, standing against uh, Mr. Modi on the national level is Rahul Gandhi. He's the scion of the, the Gandhi family, the, the Nehru Gandhi family. His great-grandfather was the first prime minister of independent India. And he leads a party that has been badly battered in recent years, especially since Mr. Modi reached prominence on the national stage. Uh, they command a pathetically small number of seats in the lower house, and yet... The head of that party, a youngish-seeming middle-aged man, is uh, the 
best hope in the form of a personality that the opposition has against Mr. Modi. That's the Congress party. And what makes them powerful, what makes them worth our attention at this point, are the fact that every other party in India, every other big party, with a couple of exceptions, has come to see Mr. Modi's government as, as an existential threat. And so they've all banded together. And what you have right now is this coalition led informally by Rahul Gandhi, but supported by every other big political party in the country. Now, if that coalition can hold together, Mr. Modi will really have to worry about keeping control of the government. I mean, democracy seems to be kind of always under threat and and more so all the time. As the world's largest democracy, do you think India provides lessons for the rest of the world? Well, India's example should be inspiring in that it's managed to maintain a democracy against extremely adverse circumstances. What was a terribly impoverished nation still is a mainly poor one, extremely heterogeneous, and yet people keep voting in, and especially they keep voting out leaders they don't like. So India's a democracy that's worked even when it shouldn't. However, that's not to say that there isn't fragility in the Indian system. And a lot of people have been concerned in the past five years that Mr. Modi's extremely effective control over all the institutions of the state might threaten democracy uh, should he uh, win power fairly one more time. So that's not to say that uh, this current election isn't lively and fully contested in democratic terms, but some people are afraid that this prime minister uh, won't be capable of seeing the next one through so democratically. Alex, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Tens of thousands of social media moderators sift through posts depicting extreme acts of violence, obscenity, and abuse on a daily basis. It's up to these often junior employees to make consequential judgments about free speech, good taste, and gratuitous violence. The wide availability of content promoting terrorism and self-harm led the British government to propose new rules last week that would punish social media companies that allow objectionable content on their platforms. Talk of this kind of regulation has been brewing for some time in Britain. In 2017, after a terrorist attack on London Bridge, Prime Minister Theresa May called for allied democratic governments to clamp down on extremist material online. We cannot allow this ideology the safe space it needs to breed. Yet that is precisely what the internet and the big companies that provide internet-based services provide. Some tech bosses have welcomed plans for increased regulation. But until that happens, the burden is on the social media giants and their armies of moderators who call the internet's most troublesome content. Every day, Facebook's 2 billion users post more than 300 million posts. There are about 95 million photos uploaded to Instagram every day. So the scale of content that is added to these platforms is enormous. And then from that, 
the users and the moderators are sort of collaborating to actually filter out and take away the bad stuff. Adam Smith has been reporting on the overwhelming task these platforms face in controlling what users can and can't see on their sites. It's very much a global problem because you might have moderators who are based in the Philippines working for a social media company who may be adjudicating the extent to which a group in Lebanon is praising Islamic State based in Syria whilst exercising an American-style version of free speech. Adam, first of all, can you just lay out how moderation actually works? A researcher called Robin Kaplan has come up with the three different ways that social media companies tend to uh, do moderation. The first one is called artisanal in her language, and that's relatively small platforms, nothing like the scale of Facebook, that employ human beings um, to look on a very, very, very small basis at posts and intervene. And they also sit close to their colleagues in those social media companies that also develop the policies around that as well. The second category is called community-based, and that is really putting the onus on users. And that's those kinds of platforms that really are user-based, user-centric, and user-moderated in this case, um, such as uh, Reddit. It's a it's a huge, huge platform, but uh, the the individual federated states, as it were, on Reddit, the subreddits, they are moderated by uh, different people who are just users. And then the third category is what's called the industrial approach. And this is the enormous, huge scale operation that platforms such as Facebook and YouTube have. They have tens of thousands of moderators. They're often based all around the world. And they're using software to look at content on their screens all day long and decide in very, very, very quick judgments whether this uh, contravenes the policy or not. And these thousands of people are essentially being asked to look at the, the, the stuff that is plausibly the worst stuff on the internet. They see pictures of child abuse, of sexual abuse, of violence, um, of nudity of the kind that they might not want to see, uh, and also various different kinds of speech, political speech, hate speech, incitement to violence as well, just through speech. Presumably this does take its toll on some of these people. That's right. And several of them over the past few years have actually sued their employers for post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, related mental health problems. The thing is that um, they're often sitting in front of a screen uh, for a very long period. There might be several things that are not at all problematic and they've been misflagged or something like that. And then all of a sudden they'll see some horrendous photo pop up and they have to immediately react. Sometimes the social media companies are actually offering some degree of counseling and they are trying to mitigate the impact of looking at some of these images by um, encouraging breaks sometimes and um, offering counseling and that kind of thing. But that's not really common practice. Well, I mean, what about those guidelines? Because they must surely change from social media company to social media company, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I mean, this is just a, uh, there is no right and wrong, really. There are different local laws governing what can be seen on Facebook in different countries. And um, that's one of the reasons why the social media platforms have different people in different countries. But then it's still very, very problematic and very difficult for them to adjudicate and to know all of the different laws in place in different countries. The policies themselves, especially with big platforms like Facebook, are often... Um, changed from one year to the next or even more frequently than that. And um, it's it can be very difficult to sort of systematize what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and how an individual moderator sitting in front of a computer screen can actually implement those rules. Did you get a sense through the course of your reporting that this is something that the, these companies can catch up with, that this is a, a soluble problem into the future? 
Not really. They are obviously building technology to try and help with this. They're increasingly using machine learning and AI to filter out various things. Mark Zuckerberg himself, though, has said that it's a lot easier to build an AI that can spot a nipple than hate speech. You know, the systems can look at photographs much more easily than they can adjudicate things like speech, which are much more fluid and um, open to interpretation. And different countries obviously have different attitudes towards how to talk about politicians. Satire just doesn't really exist in some countries. Well, that's another point is we've seen an increasing number of uh, cases where these companies, if, if not out and out involved, then at least their technology is being used in ethnic cleansing, in uh, autocratic rule of all sorts, just the, the, the world's unpleasantness as mediated through, through these platforms. That's right. I mean, it was it was found last year and Facebook admitted that Facebook had been used to stoke ethnic um, violence in the Rohingya case last year and the year before. So um, they're very much implicated in that and they're very much aware of that and the PR damage it can do. And also th- that they have lots and lots of legal demands on them from different countries and different um, different rulers in different countries, different political systems in different countries have different expectations of these platforms. And they can obviously shut them down if they, if they don't like what they see on those platforms. So there's this really weird tension between, in the case of Facebook, being an American-based company with an American uh, spirit of free speech behind it. And in many cases, at home is governed by free speech laws. And in in many ways, that is the reason for Facebook's success and its growth. Um, Also having to, on the other hand, deal with uh, um, much more repressive laws in different countries and working out, well, okay, when our platform is available in this country, do we... um, accept that we have to conform to those local laws or do we try to say no actually Facebook is is um, governed by American laws and to what extent do we respond to countries demands that we take down content which actually doesn't contravene our community guidelines at all our policies but does contravene those local laws so all of it seems to come down to the borderlessness of the internet intersecting the real borders of the world exactly Adam thanks very much for coming in thanks Jason Bo Franklin is our assistant community editor. He recently took up a new hobby. My most impressive movie is called A Jasmine. Pole dancing, or pole, as those in the know call it. I bring one knee up onto the pole, try and put all of my weight through my forearm, lean back, and attempt not to slide down the pole into a heap on the floor. He's written about the experience for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. So I'm usually around three or four feet off the ground. The best people will be doing this right up at the ceiling, seven, eight feet off the ground. I mean, could you characterize this as a as a dangerous pursuit? Oh, incredibly so. You have to have nerves of steel to try and ascend <laughs> the cold steel of no, the pole. No, but in all seriousness, I mean, at the very least, it's not as easy as it looks. No, absolutely not. But this is more than just a hobby now, right? It has sporting ambitions. It sees itself on the same kind of level as gymnastics or ice skating. And and what's it like as a sport? So there are many different disciplines. There's <laughs> okay. artistic pole, athletic pole new extreme types of pole, such as ultra pole. What's ultra pole? An attempt to get more men interested in the sport. So it's got a masculine name. Right. It seems much more macho. Right. It's very high intensity, high paced, still sliding up and down a pole. So why this push then to to bring more men into the sport? So pole's governing body, 
has approached the Olympic Committee to ask for recognition, which is the first step on the road to competing at the Games. One of the things they were told is that there aren't enough men competing, especially at the top levels. So in order to attract more men, they decided to introduce new types of disciplines. So you never know. One day you might find pole dancers alongside gymnasts, ice skaters, cyclists. But even at the highest levels, you have to be wearing very little when you're attempting to climb the pole. Having a lot of flesh on show is quite helpful because it means you can better grip the pole, unless you're me, in which case you just become clammy and panicked and slide back down the pole. And how did you get into it? So it started out as a bit of a joke. I was discussing this with my flatmate. She showed me some routines online. We were incredibly impressed and then found out that there was a class in a local studio nearby. Filled with intrigued men such as yourself? Not really. So I was one of only two men in the class. So it has a bit of a problem trying to attract men to take part, which for a fitness activity isn't really a problem. But as pole has sporting ambitions, they need to try and attract more male competitors. I note you call it pole. Yes. The, the dancing has been removed. Yeah, so most people are familiar with pole dancing. It has a long history. It goes back hundreds of years. Back in India, you had men shuffling up and down poles, performing incredible feats. In the 1920s, it became more as we know pole dancing today. It started out as a circus sideshow, and only in the 1960s did it start to become associated with strip clubs. It had its more risque reputation. And then it became more of a fitness fad and eventually took on sporting ambitions in the 90s, 2000s, and that's when people started to call it pole and take it very seriously. You, you seem pretty enamored of, of, of the whole business. Are you going to stick with it? I think I am, yeah. I've found something that's challenging, good fun, does have a slightly racy reputation, but I can live with that. I think, obviously, it's not a very macho pursuit, but I'm okay with that. I think, as a gay man, it's something that kind of naturally appeals. It's seen as a bit of taboo still, within society, and we're used to rallying around something that others see as a taboo. So I think that's probably why it appeals more to gay men than big macho straight men. Uh, Boat, thanks for coming in and taking up pole position. Thanks, Jason. I'll see you in class. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.